confession time, I'm so nervous today that I did something that in 25 years of preaching, I, I did maybe three times. I wrote every word. Uh, it's only 11, but it's really big font. <laughs> That's so I can see it. Uh, not because the words are so important. But it is, while we're in confession time, guys, a lot of things in the past few years have been pushing me, nudging me, and continually coming back into my face, convicting me that this is an evil world. Oh, it's not bad. Life is wonderful. There is beauty. There's love. There's joy. There's blessing. There's grace. And there's evil. And it doesn't go away. In one sense, that's nothing new. Ever since Eve brought her own menu, and Adam said, looks good. The world has been corrupted, and evil has wormed its way in. And human beings have gone back and forth. Trust me, I'm a history major with my first masters. The world has gone back and forth between how bad can we be and, oh, this is bad. Unfortunately, that pendulum seems to swing, and instead of stopping in a healthy place, the next group comes along and says, boy, everything's fine. I kind of like to do what I want, and we go the other way. And things like the shooting in Uvalde and all the other places in Baltimore, the, the, the long, endless list of the violence, the continuing tension and inability of, of people to simply agree that fair is fair, that justice shouldn't depend on who your parents were or what neighborhood you lived in or what color your skin is or how educated you are or what country you live in. That some things are inherently good. You know, funny, almost everyone in the world has always recognized and agreed on those. And some things are inherently evil. And almost no one in the history of the world has managed to agree on what those were. Because it mostly depends on whether or not I want to do those. And I have been sorely convicted, hammered for a long time now, and pushed over the brink with things that are going on recently. Because the confusion of this world it's also the confusion inside the Lord's body and inside our family. Folks, I'm going to talk about things today, and I will have some specifics. And they are things that I know we do not agree on. And let me say this right away. Please believe me. I don't expect us to. I don't believe we will or can at any given moment agree on all of the things. Even things that we will disagree about, are they sinful or are they just sort of not good? We are, we're not going to be puppets, and I'm not looking for conformity. I'm looking for what does it mean to be God's holy people in an unholy world so that an unholy world can see a holy God and not run screaming. And I don't think that's easy. And I don't think... I really don't think we're doing worse than the church has ever done. I just don't think we're doing better either. I think we have the same problem the church has always faced, which is it is so difficult 
in an unholy world. To not just want to be holy, I think we all do. But to really grasp and understand just how far above is the holiness that God wants for us. I am far too willing to settle for not as bad as those guys. And the sad thing is, so what? That's the most useless, irrational, egocentric, and foolish way to think that you could possibly come up. It lets you to be whatever you want and stay stuck where you are. Ignore that God has something incredible ahead of us if we will let him make us holy. It isn't hard to look around and decide that there's a lot of evil in this world. That's easy. The Ukraine, the shootings, the uproar in our country right now that, that Roe v. Wade might get revisited in the courts even if there's no guarantee what it would, would change. Uh, the, the difference between what used to be considered socially acceptable and what is now considered socially acceptable, the difference between things that we used to consider as people to be inherently wrong but now we're not so sure, there are so many ways in which confusion seems to dictate tension and conflict. And I'm convinced that we're not supposed to have tension and conflict between us even when we don't agree. And I do not want to generate tension and conflict between any of us today. But I want to tell you, I have been challenged and it has been painful. And in some sense, my view of preaching is that I listen to God and he beats up on me for a while and I invite you to join my discomfort. <laughs> Why should I go through this by myself? <laughs> okay. Because if this world's unpleasant reality is that there are terrible things, some that are easy to see, violence against women, slavery, human trafficking, uh, and all over the world there are people who suffer every day from those things. And it's easy to say they're evil and they're wrong. But it's easier to avoid them and hide from them than to try to do something about it. And yet if we're a holy people, called to be a holy people, are we not called to do something about it? God said, be holy for I am holy. But how can we be holy? In every example I've mentioned so far, there's no unanimity even among the church, even among the body of Christ about how to address those things and there probably will never be. I don't know that they're supposed to be. I do know that there's supposed to be a response and a call to holiness in every issue, in every question because God says, be holy, you're my people and I'm holy. And that's what I want for you. So if there's no unanimity about what to do, and sometimes we even find that we don't really understand the issues the same, and let me insert here, please don't understand me that I say people are wrong. I, don't, I think that's the incorrect word. I don't know that I'm wrong as much as I'm incomplete and inadequate. 
my understanding of God is inadequate. It's certainly not complete. And therefore, my understanding of holiness in this world is far too often incomplete and inadequate. And so is yours. It's the nature of being human. Of course I am. That is the purpose of preaching. If you wanted to be comfortable, join the social club. Uh, and believe me, my toes are already black and blue just in getting ready for this. Because I don't know how often I actually would look in the mirror and, and go, yeah, Bruce, you're doing a good job of being holy. It's far too likely I look in the mirror and go, goodness sakes, Bruce, you'd think you would get a clue somewhere. You're 69. What do you got to be, 80? Does that help, Ben? <laughs> Lord, come now. <laughs> now would be a good time. All right. So, what do we do when we discover that it's hard to be holy when the world's so bad? Can we just hide? I don't think so. Can we just hope nobody will bother us so we can be holy over here in the corner? Don't think so. And when we understand that we don't all feel like we should respond the same way, what are we supposed to do? Get you in the corner until you go my way? I don't think so. I don't think it's bad that we don't agree. I just think it's difficult. So I want to start with a quick lesson on why I think God doesn't expect us to have unanimity of opinion or conformity while he expects us very, very, very much to have unity of faith and unity of fellowship and that there are principles that he talks about in the way we must follow our conscience. Uh, and so 1 Corinthians, I'm, I'm going to go through this really fast, and if that confuses you, you can have the transcript, or even better yet, we can sit down and drink 12 cups of coffee and, uh, and, and think about it some more. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, it's because they were not getting along based on the fact they didn't understand things the same way. In chapter 10, the issue is actually eating food that was sacrificed to idols, which was a big deal in Corinth. And some said, if you eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol, you're participating in that idolatry and telling people that idolatry is okay. And so you can't eat it. And other people were saying, that's the cheapest meat in the meat market, and we're poor. So poor that I don't, ha I don't think that sacrificing to an idol means anything because there is only one God and Jesus is his son and that idol is a lump of something. And my kids need to eat and I'm buying it. And then they started slamming it. The problem was not what they did. Paul's going, the problem is not what you're doing. The problem is you're expecting the other person to live your way. Paul says, whatever is sold in the meat market, eat without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, when you go out to eat together or you get invited to a house, just shut up and eat. Don't sit there and play your games. Well, did you buy this at John's Kosher Butchery? Or did you go down to Apollo's Temple? Shut up and eat. Be polite. Good advice in any circumstance, in any culture. Don't raise any question because the earth is God's and the fullness thereof. So if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and now he goes outside, an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you happen to know that they've been to the temple of Apollo. So they bring in and they bring out the, the meat and in the ancient world eating meat was a treat. It didn't happen very often for most people. And here it comes and you go, 
well, did you get this at Apollo's temple? I can't eat it. Paul says, don't ask any questions, just eat it. He says, now, if the family that invited you over, this unbeliever, says to you, hey, we're just celebrating Apollos today, and we got this meat, we joined in the sacrifice, and we'd invite you to share in this special religious occasion with us. Paul says, don't touch it. For conscience sake, not yours. Theirs. Don't, in your action, affirm to them the thing that is taking them away from God. Guys, that's a principle that I think is hard to follow and very necessary for us in this confused world. Follow your conscience. But don't expect people who don't believe to have any reason whatsoever to even understand our conscience questions. They don't. But if they invite you to share in their incorrect belief, he says, don't affirm that. He's not saying don't be friends with them, don't hang around. He says, but don't affirm to them the thing when they make that point to you that this is to celebrate this, then you don't do that. Okay. Uh, Paul says the principle is whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. I have no idea what the slides are doing back there, so <laughs> if they keep up, fine. If they don't, I'm not stopping. Uh, if you eat anything, you drink anything. What you do is for the glory of God. Don't offend the Jews. Don't offend the Greeks. Don't offend the church. Guys, that's important. Don't offend the Jews who got all sorts of special rules and are really serious about them. Don't offend the Gentiles who have very few rules and are really serious about not having them. And don't offend each other. Because the idea is to glorify God. I try to please everyone in everything I do, and Paul is not toadying up to people. He's saying, whenever I deal with them, I try to deal with them in a way that doesn't make it harder to show them Jesus. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Guys, we got a tough job. We're not supposed to affirm people in their incorrect ways that take them away from God. And we're not supposed to make that an issue that keeps us from reaching them either. Okay. First point. Second point, Romans. Now it's more internal to the church. And now Paul says something that's very important. This is where I think we, we're, we're incorrect to say that other people are wrong or they're... I even have it in my notes that I said, Paul's saying this brother is wrong. And I'm looking at it this morning going, oh, well, that's really poorly said. Paul is saying that he's not mature. Uh... Paul says, welcome the one who is weak in faith, but not to quarrel over opinions. Here the problem is, some people say it's so wrong, you just go vegetarian and then you're safe. Don't eat meat. Okay. Uh, while another person in the church thinks you can eat anything, and the weak person only eats vegetables. So don't despise the one who abstains from eating meat. And the one who abstains from eating meat, don't judge the one who eats the meat, because God's welcome. Who do you think you are judging each other? Excuse the paraphrase. Who do you think you are? They're not your servant. It's to his own master that he stands or falls, and he's going to stand, because God's able to make him stand. What does he mean? Simple. One person is weak because he thinks that what he eats has the possibility of corrupting him. And Paul says, that's really not what Jesus taught. That's really not what Jesus taught at all. But, 
That's his understanding. So, you leave him alone. And the one who has that weaker opinion, which in, actually in this case is maturity, you leave the other people alone. You're not here to make other people conform to your place of understanding. Okay, that's important. We even understand issues of sin differently sometimes. Why? Because we're all enculturated in a special way. You cannot help it. You are enculturated because you're born into this world and you grow up in it. And there are 12 billion things that impact you all the way through. And you don't even know what most of them are. I'm a child of the 50s. In the 1950s, the common cultural presumption was that, that a good Christian looked like a good American citizen. Indistinguishable. Why? Because we're a Christian nation. Leave that one alone for now, please. Okay. But because of that overlay, people my age grew up enculturated in a world that said the way God wants everything to go is pretty much the way it goes, and they're indistinguishable. They're one and the same, and Christianity becomes reduced to the rules of being a good citizen and fitting in with everybody else comfortably. Now, Paul says what we've got here is a difference between those who are weaker in faith and stronger in faith. But Paul says these are opinions about what you do. They're not really about sin or something else. Paul says, and this weak conscience doesn't have to be changed. Paul doesn't demand either one of these people change their minds or their practices. He just says you need to accept one another and take care of each other because you are obligated to honor God following your conscience. He'll even go so far as saying, even though you're practicing opposite behaviors in the same community, that's what you have to do. I don't know about you, but I like conformity. It makes me feel that I'm smart and right. Two illusions that most of us cherish. But even though they'll practice opposite behaviors, Paul goes on to explain that it's important because your adherence to your conscience, even if it's a weak and incomplete understanding, is, is an expression of your obedience and faith to God. And that because intentionally doing what you think you should not do is a rejection of your obedience and faith in God. A breaking of it. He says, that's why you can't do it. Paul finishes this chapter by saying, whatever is not of faith is sinful. Why? Because I'm doing something I think I shouldn't do. I think it's wrong to slap my wife, so I walk over and slap her. You do what you shouldn't do. I think it's wrong to steal, so I cheat on my taxes. I do intentionally what my conscience says I shouldn't do. Paul says, that's the one thing you can't do if you want to be holy people. Even if your understanding is immature and incomplete. And when you look at that, you look around, you're going to see people who hold different understandings all the way up and down the spectrum on any number of things here. And Paul's saying, you're not the judge. They're not your servant. You each must obey your understanding or else be intentionally disobedient to God. And leaves us with a simple thing. We can't look down on each other 
And in our communal interactions, we have to be guided by respect for each other's understanding and make deliberate choices to nurture that relationship when we differ. Because guys, unanimity is not the norm. But then there's the question, is everything a matter of conscience? I don't think it is. Are there things that Paul doesn't leave in the realm of conscience? In Paul's writings to all of the churches, there is a significant difference the way Paul addresses matters of conscience and matters of sin. And Paul defines sin rather more strictly than we are comfortable in doing in the 21st century. That's why he tells the Corinthians not to eat meat when people say, this is our celebration of Apollos. Will you join us in our meal? And he says, you can't. Why? Because joining him in the meal testifies to them that you accept their idolatry and that idolatry is keeping them cut off from Jesus. And he says, no, you can't do that because that's approving of sin. Now, now you're taking them farther from God. You can't do that. It's not the same thing. When he tells the Romans that they have a weak faith when they insist on a vegetarian diet but not to eat meat, it's not the sin of acting meat. It's only the sin of deliberately disobeying what you think God wants. But then, what about the things that God has defined as wrong? As acts that violate His will for us and the inherent nature of His creation. Things that Paul and Peter and John all will say called dishonoring God and dishonoring His creation. Guys, the Bible's list is really specific. And they're not comfortable things to accept. And we live in a world that doesn't accept such definitions. The world we live in insists that even to label something as inherently wrong is to be intolerant, spiteful, and hateful. No matter how gently you say it. The world we live in has surrendered to the axiom that each person is the sole and unquestioned authority in the definition of right and wrong, good and evil for themselves. We have created a world with eight billion little gods running around ruling nothing, not even themselves. And what's sad about that is that there is a small, small place where it's almost right. Almost. It has to do with conscience and your obligation to follow it. You are the only one in charge of that. It's you to God and God to you. That's why Paul says you don't live according to anybody else's conscience. You have to follow yours. But Paul fully expects our consciences to mature and grow. Because he will say first of all that we are incomplete people. And that we are going to be brought to completion. And so if it's uncomfortable to grow up in a world that enculturates us to make it difficult to be certain. Guys, certainty is not always our friend. I've been certain of many things. At 18, I was certain that I was going to be in the NBA by the age of 23. They missed their chance. 
At the age of 20, 25, I was sure that I was going to be the next great record label. Until I got enough sense to realize I do not want to swap a life that's worthwhile for a life that's so empty. Been a lot more fun as soon as I quit thinking of music as a way to make money. And a lot more productive. Okay. But if in this world we find ourselves wishing that wouldn't it be nice if everybody was on the same page with me? Of course it would be. But all that would really do is confirm us in our incompleteness and give us no reason to grow. I need the people who do not understand things the way I do to challenge me and force me to think and listen to God and hear again and grow. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 when he said he was confident that God would bring to completion in you, in you the good work he had begun in Jesus Christ. Okay. That we aren't finished products and won't be until Jesus brings us to completion. And that being true, uh, then that means that in this life process here where we are, that, that God is at work in us, and if, and if our task is to work with God and become matured and grow in completion and constantly grow closer to God and become more holy because we begin to understand holiness better and we begin to discern sin more wisely and we begin to understand how our response has got to accomplish the purpose of not alienating the sinner but bringing them to Jesus, then... And only then can we maybe begin to understand how valuable it is in the church that we do not always lockstep into conformity. Paul will even write to the Philippians in chapter 3 after talking about why he wanted to surrender everything to Jesus and be crucified with Jesus, be completely made over with him so that he might know Christ's sufferings and be conformed to Christ's death and be just like Christ. And he said, and some of you don't agree with this. That's not on your bucket list. And he says... Never, even so, let everyone who's mature think the way I think. If you're mature, think this way. And if, and if you think otherwise in any way, God will reveal that also to you. Just let's hold on to what we have attained. Let's not go backwards. God will bring us to maturity. Just don't go backwards. So, introduction over. <laughs> now the short part of the sermon, because I've got more questions than I've got answers. Who are we supposed to be in this world? What are we supposed to be doing? How's the world supposed to see us, guys? Our identity as followers of Jesus. Our purpose as God's people in this world. Yes, Greg, our missional function. <laughs> calls us to be holy people like God is holy. And that's not just being set apart for God, which is one sense of the word holiness, is to be set apart for God like I'm the sacrifice, so cut my throat, pour the blood out, and not really. Okay. Hyperbole. Uh, but in, in terms of holiness set apart for God, but holy in the very character and nature of God. The nature that does not contain sin because God is good. The goal for us is the goodness of God in this world 
expressed through us, however incompletely and imperfectly and inadequately we are at any given moment, that is still the goal. When I was in Albuquerque, I played basketball a couple of nights a week with the 25-year-olds, and I was 45. Okay. Uh, when we left Albuquerque, they engraved a plaque for me, and, and it says, Bruce, every time you took a shot, you taught us again about the fullness of God's grace. And I said, yes, but every time I took a shot, my objective was to put it in the goal. I don't care how crazy it looks. I never in my life have taken a shot that I meant to miss. Every time the ball left my hand, I fully expect it to go in. Of course, the actual percentages are radically different. But the objective never was. Guys, that is what we are called to. The goal is the holiness of God. Every time. In every question. And that's why this question of sin bothers me. Because Peter says, you're, you're, a, royal, you're a royal priesthood. <laughs> you know? You're, you're people called to be a holy people. You're going to be just like God because He is holy. And that's the goal. And, and since that's the goal... Any day that we're not aiming for that is a day that we are really missing it. It's a wasted day. And how many of us actually live focused that well? Goodness sakes, we live on autopilot 99% of the time. Well, I do. I don't know about you. But I suspect that we're not that different. And I think then how about Paul described it too when he said, listen, to be holy people in the world, Paul says, here's what it takes. Uh, in, in Romans 12, he says, says, one, if you're going to be God's people, let love be genuine. But then he says something really startling. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. What is that doing in that paragraph? Listen to the rest of it. I'm just going to leave it out. Let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Show hospitality. You could have that whole passage without that jarring, abhor evil. Abhor means to view with extreme disgust and even hatred. Abhor evil. That's a harsh word, isn't it? You can't even say it nice. It must be German in origin. <laughs> abhor evil. Hold fast to what is good. Guys, I think we're too accustomed to evil. I think we're too used to it. I think we're, we're, we're past being shocked. And that's why and every now and then something happens and we're shocked and, and we, we really go. And, and yet most of the time we're not. But Paul's saying something about if you want to be God's holy people, this abhorrence of evil needs to be part of your makeup. And the problem with that is, is that I don't think that we can abhor something that we don't, Recognize. And I think that's a problem because I think this world is confused. I think it's going to be really, really hard to have authentic, genuine love and authentic goodness and overcome evil when we don't even recognize evil for evil. 
And we live in a world that's not going to help us because this world is determined to justify every way of living and behavior and thinking that you possibly can imagine. The world wants you to say it's fine. And yet when I read scripture and I think, how do I overcome evil? There's evil that's there. And I'm not really happy that some of it's in the list because it makes me have to make uncomfortable choices. Some evils are easy to recognize. When I go through the list of, of Putin and his aggression and his violence against his neighbors. Shootings and mass shootings at schools and marketplaces and factories and post offices. Human trafficking, enslaving women and children. Injustice where people do not trust authority because in their experience authority isn't fair. Oh, those are easy to recognize. But even there, our responses won't be the same. Some of us in this room, we will want to affiliate with organizations. We'll want laws. We'll want uh, protests. We'll want Guys, follow your conscience. We are called to oppose evil. We are not called to all understand the same way of doing it. And we can leave each other alone because our job is to overcome evil with good. And nothing is overcome by hiding in the corner and hoping it goes away. But if our response to those is a conscience matter, guys, what do we do about evil that's well disguised or well confused? In a world that deliberately obscures the reality of sin and evil according to the big lie that perception is reality and truth is relative. Guys, perception and reality are two different things. My perception was I was the greatest basketball player on the horizon since Bob Cousy. The reality is I was somewhat less. It is kind of you not to point out how much less. But perception is not reality. Perception is just your take on things. And how accurate it is and how real it is depends completely on how accurate and complete your perceptions are. And most of us don't perceive past the end of our nose very well. Perception is what we operate by. That's why we operate so badly so often. It's our basis for our own decisions. But it isn't reality. Reality is an immutable thing reflecting the nature of God, like truth. And it doesn't get changed just because we don't like it. Guys, take a think. Why do magic shows and magicians make such good money? Because they know that perceptions are not reality, but they can make you perceive whatever they want and deceive your eyes, and you go, Whoa, how did they do that? <laughs> They didn't. They just made you think they did. They didn't actually do it. But there's a reason to insist that perception and reality and truth depends on your point of view. And the reason simple. It lets me do whatever I want to. That's all I have to do to look in the mirror and say, yep, you're great. Do whatever you please. Legard Smith tells a story from back in the 80s when this began to dominate. He had a class introduction to law, and in this class, 
as they worked on an assignment in which he asked them to describe evil and he used World War II and the Holocaust as an example. And to his surprise, one of his students, a young Jewish woman, turned in a paper in which she argued very cogently that while Hitler's actions were things that she personally found reprehensible, she could not fault him for doing them because he was being true to his own beliefs of right and wrong. Guys, that's not tragic. That's evil. That is, a, that is a substitution of a lie for truth. It is a bowing down at the altar of self. So it's no surprise to me that this my truth, your truth, perception, reality, society has trouble identifying sin. And it doesn't surprise me that we sometimes struggle with things that we might think are sin but wish weren't or things that we don't want to be sin so we're going to find a way not to think that or things that we're just not going to talk about because we don't want to talk about it because it's going to do guys we're not going to agree on things but there are things in scripture that God has called sin and always has and a point I'd like to make about this is not just any sins are worse than others. Uh, but that anything that cuts us off from God and denies God's nature and holiness and obscures His holiness in us is sinful. And we can't hold on to it. And we may struggle with issues like, what do we do? I have a transgender granddaughter whose name changes fairly often who wants to do at age 15 irreversible things to her body. I have a gay nephew who doesn't want me to know that he's gay. And especially don't want my parents to know. Okay. I have friends whom I dearly love who struggle with all sorts of lifestyle issues. They are terribly sexually immoral desperately looking for some comfort and connection. I have a niece whose 16-year-old daughter had to give her CPR because two days out of rehab clinic, she had OD'd on the floor of her apartment and did not have a heartbeat or a breath when her daughter came in. Guys, the evil in this world is real cutting people off from God and, and, it, and we're going to struggle guys uh, we're arguing and discussing and think, and wondering is, is this is really sinful is this a cultural thing do we have some bias is it, guys those are fair questions ducking them won't help us they're fair questions because if we aren't willing to ask them and listen then we're not going to let God bring us in to a better and more complete understanding and I'm tired of being immature. I'm too old to be immature. But I'm going to be immature until Jesus finishes with me. But I do not want to stay here. I think we're obligated to remember what Paul said. Let as many of you as are mature think the same way.
But if you don't, God will reveal it to you. Guys, I believe God will do that. I believe God will do that. If we are willing to participate with Him in this growth in wisdom, understanding, and holiness. If we're willing to be changed. Because there is no one in this room who will not be changed if we're letting God bring us to maturity. And in the process of this, we had better be willing to accept that the reality, we cannot demand that other people be where we are. We cannot do that. They're not ours. They're God's. And God will bring them where God wants them. And we need to be careful that our expressions of what we understand doesn't become a barrier to the people who are caught up in the things that we believe are not right. There is no room for smug, self-satisfied faith in a holy people. It's a contradiction. We have got to pursue holiness in our own lives. And if we will, we're going to become so conscious of God's holiness that we'll never be able to forget how much we depend on His grace. And we'll learn that we dare not look down other people's imperfections and incompleteness because that same grace is offered freely to them. Guys, Paul tells us, when the time was right, God sent His Son into the world. That Jesus died... For the ungodly. If there were any of us who were already godly. That's not who Jesus died for. And there is no difference between it. Sin, sin is sin. If it's cutting us off from God. Then it needs to go. Because God is a holy God and He desperately wants us and He has done everything He can. And our pursuit of holiness must not become a stumbling block that means people cannot listen to what we have to say. But there are still things we have to say. The world's demanding that we let them define right and wrong for us. I'm not willing to join that delusion. I can't. I don't want to affirm the behaviors of those who are doing things that are cutting them off from God. But at the same time, I desperately want to show them that the same Jesus who died for me died for them and that their sin is not any worse than mine. Mine was not worse than them. Without Jesus, we are both away from God. And I don't know that that's the message we've been sending. But I think it's our responsibility to be a people who show that God is good and holy and that God wants them there too. I think this is a difficult task. And how we do it, how each one of us attempts to do it is going to look different and be different and we're never going to be at the same place at the same time. And in fact, we're going to have to make the choice. You know, are we willing to do it? Paul warns Timothy that everyone that wants to do righteously in this world is going to be persecuted and evil people will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's just the same. See, it's nothing different. But you and I can either decide to let it go God's way and accept the discomfort and the challenge or we can seek the comfort of conformity and try to push each other into our little box so that we all satisfy each other's boxes 
and the world goes away lost. Or we can give up on conformity and trust God for unity. I don't know, guys. It's a conscience thing. I know we can't agree on it. I don't expect us to. And I surely do not want to put barriers between myself and my brothers and sisters in Christ. But we live in an evil world that is screaming for some of God's holiness and grace. And I think we need to make sure we're not in the way of that. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your grace to us. Because we are so, so often incomplete and immature and sometimes very satisfied to stay there. God, break the bonds of our fears that keep us from changing. Take away our hesitance to be different from the things in the world that we know are not good. Teach us to be holy the way that you were holy. And teach us to love each other. And challenge each other along the way. But not to fight each other, God. For you have not called us to fight. You have not called us to conformity. You have called us to unity in Jesus to come along together until we all reach that point where you finish the good work you have begun in us, the work for which we praise you and marvel at you. Forgive us, God, when we hesitate, when we fixate, when we demand from others things that belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.